The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Morning, Bereans. Appreciate you all being with us today. Um, I'm entitled the message this morning, Fishing with Yeshua. If you're going to go fishing, it's good to take him with you, okay? You'll see in the story today that uh, you want to catch something, you take Yeshua along with you. All right, we've been looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Yeshua. All right, we saw him crucified, we saw him put in the grave, and then the resurrection. And so these post-resurrection appearances are basically proofs that the Lord has risen from the dead. He's alive, people are seeing him. The first appearance was to Mary, who I believe was Lazarus' sister. He appeared to her at dawn on that Sunday morning. And then later on that afternoon, there's a couple disciples on the road to Emmaus walking along, and Yeshua shows up, and they're talking to him. And so he appears to them. Then later on that day, the apostles were gathered together, which I believe was in the upper room, and he shows up to them. But Thomas wasn't with them. So the following Sunday evening, again Yeshua shows up into this locked room, and Thomas is there. And he tells Thomas, hey, if you touch him, touch my hands, put your hand on my side, feel it. And Thomas' response was, my Lord and my God. That's pretty strong language coming from a Jew, okay? That's one of the strongest statements affirming the deity of Yeshua that we're going to find in Scripture. Well, then Lazarus tells us that he wrote this gospel to lead readers to the type of faith that Thomas had just articulated. That's what this is about. Thomas said, my Lord, my God, I've written this thing, so you will see that also, that we would believe, and he says, and therefore have life. Now, Luke tells us that Yeshua's post-resurrection appearances lasted for how many days? Anybody know how long he showed himself to different people? 40 days, okay? Acts 1-3. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now here Luke is stressing the great and central fact of the Christian faith. Yeshua is alive. Okay? That fact is what separates Christianity from all other religions. He's alive. He's risen from the dead. Christ showed Himself to the apostles so they would know that He had conquered death. One of the greatest proofs of the resurrection is the early church's boldness and commitment to preaching the Gospel after the resurrection. I mean, that these guys would go out and sacrifice their lives, be tortured, be crucified, they must have seen something, okay? They're not, this is not a lie. Let's go out and all die for a lie. You know, let's, let's pretend he's alive and let's just all go, no! They saw him. There's a list of people that Christ appeared to in 1 Corinthians. It says, and then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, that's the reference for the disciples, then to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive now. You understand audience relevance, hopefully. You know, and that's the funny thing about audience relevance. People read a passage like this and they realize, 
Well, that's to them. But they get to other passages and they don't realize it's to them. Most of whom are still alive. They're not still alive today. They were when this was written. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, last of all, as to one ultimately untimely born, he appeared also to me. So, more than 500 people at one time saw him. And, and Paul says, listen, they're still around if you want to check out the story. Go talk to them. Those appearances convinced Christ's followers that the Lord had truly indeed risen. Now, <clears throat> let me share you something that you know I kind of thought up this week and give me your feedback on it. Maybe not right this second, but you know, I'd like to know what you think. <laughs> I see these 40 days as a transition period. Now, we're used to thinking 40 years and 40 years being a transition period, but I see this as a 40-day transition period that's moving the Lord's disciples. All right, they're transitioning from the days of being with Christ 24-7, doing everything with Him, being with Him, to the days of we don't see Him anymore at all. And so in these 40 days, He's appearing to them, then He's disappearing, and He's coming. You know, so it's kind of a transition time that they need to get used to him being gone, because once the ascension happens, after the 40 days, he's gone. Now, I'm sure you're aware that of all the types and shadows of Scripture, none is probably as pervasive and therefore important as the shadows revealed in the relationship between 40 and the fulfillment of promises. Now, throughout Scripture, we find this usage of the number 40. Examples are 40 days and nights that God causes it to rain on the face of the earth. The length of the reign of David... Saul, Solomon, all 40 years. Besides this, we see 40 as a temporal shadow in the duration of Jonah's preaching a judgment to the Ninevites. The number of days that the spies searched out the land of Canaan. Christ fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. But we find the most significant type of 40 is the 40 years of the wilderness wandering of the children of Israel. You know, they go out and they're 40 years in transitioning until they reach the land of promise. And then we know when, when we come to the New Testament, we see that same transition period where the church, where the, they're moving from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and the consummation of the New Covenant. So the exodus out of Egypt is, is a major type. It's, again, uh, we see it again in the New Testament until we arrive at the new heavens and new earth in AD 70. So 40 is you know, a big deal. And I see this as another transition period. During this 40 days between His resurrection and ascension, the disciples find themselves relating to Yeshua in an entirely different way. They're not used to this. Like I said, they spent, you know, discipleship with the Lord wasn't, you know, Tuesday night there's a class from 8 to 10. No. It was they spent every second with Him. They traveled together. They ate together. They slept together. They did everything together. They were with, and that was the whole thing with the rabbi. You wanted to be with your rabbi every second because you're learning about life from your rabbi. And so now he's gone, and now they're like, okay, we know he's alive, but he's not here with us. And we've got to figure out how to function now that we can't you know, go to him. You had a question? Let me just go to, let me talk to Yeshua. He'll be able to answer this for us. They've got to relearn, learn to relate to him in a new way. Remember what the risen Christ said to Mary in John 20, 17? Yeshua said to her, 
don't cling to me. Now, there's a lot of different translations of what that means. We talked about that. Basically, he's saying, just, I'm, you can't hang on to me anymore, okay? He's not worried about her touching him. You know, it's just, you can't cling to me because I haven't yet ascended to the Father. He goes, go and tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father. Your Father. So I'm leaving. So you can't be clinging to me. There's, there's a new relationship now. And I'm not going to be physically present with you. Contact like this is not going to be available. So I see these 40 days as a transition period for the disciples. Soon they need to learn to just trust Him, although they no longer saw Him. Okay? And that's all we know, people, right? But if you can imagine spending three years with them and then all of a sudden, well, now we've got to get a new relationship going. All right, let's look at our text. After this, Yeshua revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed Himself in this way. Now, let me just tell you this as we come to chapter 21. Many critical scholars view chapter 21 as a later addition to the Gospel. They don't think it was even written by John. They say it's kind of anticlimactic. You know, after you get the conclusion of, I mean, you got Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. And then you say, you got him writing, well, this is why I wrote this gospel. This is the purpose I wrote it so you would believe. And then it's like, then they're going fishing. You know, and it's like, ah, they, they just don't see that as fitting. So they think it was later, written later, and maybe even by another author. Well, I want to defend chapter 21, okay? Because I think chapter 21 belongs there. I think it was written by Lazarus. Chapter 21 is quoted by many early church fathers like Tertullian. It's included in the commentary on the Gospel of John by the early mid-third century biblical scholar Origen. And he doesn't question you know, its inclusion at all. There's no extant Greek manuscript that lacks this last chapter. None. And there's no serious evidence in the manuscript tradition for it being added later. Alright? Also, the linguistic evidence shows a number of places where chapter 21 exhibits the same vocabulary, the same syntactical constructions that are typical in the whole rest of the book. So I don't see any reason to, you know, argue or doubt this chapter. Lazarus began his gospel with the prologue. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 18 is the prologue. It follows that he should end the gospel with an epilogue. Okay? The prologue sets the stage and the epilogue closes the curtain on the events of the fourth gospel. In the prologue, what's, what we're seeing is the Holy Spirit set forth, here's what Christ was before he became a man and began his redemptive work. And the epilogue is, okay, here's what it's like for Christ after the redemptive work on his way to the Father. So I think they're kind of brackets around. I don't... I just don't see a problem with this chapter, okay? But you'll, you know, if you're doing any study, you'll read that people say, oh, this doesn't belong. It does belong. Okay, let's just leave it there, okay? I think it's there for a reason. So we're going to look at it like it does belong, okay? Like Lazarus wrote it because I think that, you know, he did. All right, he says, after this, in the Greek, it's metatauta, which establishes a sequence, but not chronological details. In other words, after this, Okay, after what we just talked about, all right, he shows up, he's in the upper room with the disciples, and after this, uh, there's a time reference here, but we don't know how long, we don't know when. We do know this, it occurred sometime during the 32-day period between Thomas' confession in 2028 
and Yeshua's ascension in Acts 1.9. So 32 days. Somewhere in that 32 days, He showed up. We don't exactly know when this thing happened. It says, Yeshua revealed Himself again to the disciples. Now this is the third time in this Gospel that Yeshua appears to the disciples. This time He reveals Himself to seven of them as they're fishing on the Sea of Tiberias. Now, anybody know what the Sea of Tiberias is? Never heard of it? What? Are you guessing? <laughs> yes, you're right. It, this is the first, um, only the fourth gospel mentions the Sea of Tiberias. But it is the Sea of Galilee. And we know that because John tells us. John 6.1 After this, Yeshua went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. See, we don't have to question it. There it is. There's the answer right there. All right. So, Galilee. Now, this freshwater lake is known as the Lake of Gennesaret in Matthew. Uh, Mark and Luke all call it that. In the Tanakh, it's called Kinneroth. All right, so different names, four different names for this thing. The Sea of Galilee was known for its abundance of fish. It's the only freshwater lake in the area. It's about 13 miles wide, 7 miles long, and only 150 feet at its deepest point. And it's surrounded by mountains. Now in AD, in 20 AD, about seven or eight years before Yeshua began his ministry, Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, built a new administrative capital on the southwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He dedicated the city in honor of the Roman Emperor Tiberius Caesar, calling the city Tiberius. So Herod Antipas not only named his new city for the emperor, but he also renamed the lake in the emperor's honor, and that's how he got the name Tiberius, the Sea of Tiberius. Okay, it's, that's how that's connected. Now, what do we know about Galilee? All right, they're in the Sea of Galilee, which is in the region of Galilee. What do you know about Galilee? Well, Yeshua was from Nazareth, which is in Galilee. Okay, so that's kind of his hometown. On the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee is the city of Capernaum. That was the home base for Yeshua throughout much of his Galilean ministry. Now, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, Galilee was an area of about 60 by 30 miles and had 204 villages in it with none less than 15,000 people in each village. This means there's more than 3 million people in this extended region. So Galilee was a place of a lot of stuff going on. Okay, There's a lot of people, a lot of excitement, this is where Yeshua launched His public ministry. Now, what I think is funny is people tend to think of Jerusalem as the center of religious learning and Galilee some backwoods, hick place where uneducated people are from, right? And that couldn't be further from the truth. See, Jerusalem was dead spiritually, okay? I mean, it was. There was nothing happening there. Galilee was the place where things were going on. The level of learning and education in Galilee exceeded that of Judea in Yeshua's day. Galilee surpassed even Judea in the schools of learning, and most of the famous rabbis of Yeshua's day were from Galilee. All right? According to Professor Shamul Safare, Hebrew University professor of Jewish history of the period of the Mishnah and Talmud, he says not only did a number of first century Galilean rabbis known from rabbinic literature, exceed the number of Judean rabbis, but even the moral and ethical quality of their teaching excelled that of the Judean counterparts. This is the world that Yeshua ministered in. So Galilee is just a, it's kind of the spiritual center. It's where things are really happening. 
So why are the disciples in Galilee? What are they doing there? Well, Lazarus doesn't explain why they're in Galilee. He just tells us that they're there. But Mark tells us that they were there because Yeshua told them to go there and someone else told them to go there. Who else? Yeshua says, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So go to Galilee. I'm going before you there. Who else told them that? The angels. Mark 16. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going before you to Galilee. Just what Yeshua said. There you will see him. Just as he told you. Okay, so he said go to Galilee. We're telling you go to Galilee. So they did. This took them out of Jerusalem and Judea, which was a source of strong opposition. There's a lot of turmoil in Jerusalem at this time because where's this body? You know, where's these disciples? Maybe they stole them. So they got out of there. Now, Peter is from there. So are James and John. This is their hometown. Okay, so they're kind of back to their own stopping ground and they're waiting there for Yeshua. It says, after this, Yeshua revealed himself again to the disciples. He revealed himself in this way. Now, our text, 1 through 14, mentions this three times about Yeshua revealing himself to the disciples. We see it in verse 14. It says, This was now the third time that Yeshua was revealed. This word is common in Lazarus' writing and conveys the idea of making visible or making known. See, Lazarus wants us to understand that verses 1 through 14 reveal Christ. That's what this fishing trip is about to reveal Christ. In both verses 1 and 14, the word reveal is used to describe the effect of this event. Now, the revealing here is the knowledge which God conveys by direct supernatural means. That's the idea of revealing. This is supernatural. See, these disciples couldn't recognize Christ unless He made Himself known to them. Now, for instance... We see this all through this transition period, this 40-day transition period. Remember Mary? Mary is one of the few people, one of three people in the New Testament that is said that Yeshua loves. They have a close relationship. She finds Him, you know, she meets the risen Christ, and what does she say? Hey, what have you done with the Lord? Are you the gardener? Who are you? I mean, how does she not know who He is? Luke also records, you know, these two disciples. On the road to admit, they're disciples of Christ. He shows up and he's talking with them and they're like, who is this guy? They don't have a clue who he is. How do they not know him? The problem is, the way I understand this, is that apart from divine revelation, the human reasoning powers are limited to the natural realm. And they just didn't get it. They couldn't see Him. They couldn't understand it was Him until He revealed Himself to them. Now, verse 2 says, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of His disciples were together. Alright, here we have Peter, Thomas, whose mention forms kind of a link and connection with chapter 20. Nathaniel, the only other time Nathaniel is mentioned in the New Testament is in John 1, 45-51. But here we learn that he's from Canaan and Galilee. So he's back in his hometown also. So he's in familiar territory. Then we see we have the sons of Zebedee. That's James and John, right? Lazarus never identified them in this way before. And then we have two other disciples. That seem weird? He's naming all these guys. Oh, there's two other guys. We don't even need to name them. We don't even need to talk about them guys. 
What is he didn't like these guys or what? Well, where else in the gospel, this gospel, are there unnamed disciples? Well, if you remember back, I don't know, a few years ago, when we were in chapter 1, John 1, 35, it says, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. It's John the Baptist, okay? And he looked, and Yeshua walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Yeshua. So here we have two disciples leaving John the Baptist to follow Yeshua. Who are they? Well, in verse 40, it says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Yeshua was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Okay? So we know that one of them was Andrew. The other one is never named. And see, that, the thing is, that's consistent with the author's practice of not naming himself. It seems safe to assume that when the writer makes reference to another unnamed disciple, he has in mind this one particular disciple that Yeshua loved. And it's hard to believe that the writer has a number of different people he's committed to keeping anonymous. Talking about himself. And he calls himself the disciple whom Yeshua loved. So in our text, the two were not named. That's consistent with his practice of not naming himself. He refers to himself in verse 7. He says, the disciple whom Yeshua loved. So we have seven disciples listed here, right? That ring a bell? Why seven? Where's the rest of them? What's going on? Why? Yeah, seven is a number biblically of completion, of perfection, symbolized, you know, completion. So he may be implying that the lesson that's taught here is applicable to all disciples, which would mean us, okay? All disciples. This is a perfect thing. You've got seven of them here. This applies to all of us. So what's going on here? All right, verse 3 says, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, hey, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Okay? I'm going fishing. Oh my word, Peter has gotten so much grief over this. So many people say, he's given up the faith. He's walking away from the Lord. He's just, you know, he's apostatizing. I guess it makes something good to write about, but you know, you don't get that from the text itself, okay? That sees way too much significance in the present infinitive here. All Peter was proposing was a fishing trip, okay? Let's go fishing. Perhaps out of economic necessity. When they traveled with Yeshua, there was women who traveled with them, and the women provided for them out of their finances. Some rich ladies traveled around. Well, now they're on their own. They're like, hey, uh, we're used to Yeshua feeding us, taking care of us. What are we going to do? Let's go fishing. We know how to do that, right? Beasley Murray comments this. I, th- I thought this was a great comment. He goes, even though Jesus be crucified and risen from the dead, the disciples must still eat. Right? Let's go get some fish. There's nothing sinful about that. Nothing wrong with that. Let's go get some fish. I'm hungry. And listen, if they went to Galilee because the Lord said go there. So they go to Galilee and they're waiting. You know, Peter's not good at waiting. He's not a very patient person. You know, so he's been waiting for what he's concluding. You know, let's do something to kill the time here. Let's go fishing. We can catch some food. We can kill some time. And so he announces his colleagues, I'm going fishing. I'm not just going to sit around here and wait. And they say, hey, we'll go with you. You know, Peter's kind of the unofficial leader. He was the oldest of the group. And he was an experienced fisherman. So they said, let's all go, all seven of them, go fishing. Now, I believe Lazarus is one of these. And he's not a fisherman. He's a priest. But he's like, hey, you guys know what you're doing. I'm going with you. I don't mind going with someone who knows something. You know, that's the best way to do something. Okay? Let me tell you, 
Kathy and I go down to the Florida Keys to stay with the Hoferts, and the thing that makes the Florida Keys so amazing is the Hoferts. They live there all their life. I mean, they know every. They take us places that you couldn't pay people to take you because they know these places. You know, it's amazing when you know they know where they're going, and it's man, it's, it's incredible. Well, that's what this was like. Lazarus goes, "Hey, you're a fisherman. I've never really been in a boat. Let's go. Let's go do some fishing. These guys know what they're doing." And so that night they caught nothing. And Lazarus probably thinking, "Yeah, you guys are real fishermen, all right." Okay. <laughs> now he includes the the information here that it's night. You know, in John and night, you know, there's a darkness to night, and he uses that symbolically. But maybe this is just a, an accurate historical detail here, because night fishing was customary then. It's still customary on the Sea of Galilee. So that night, the fish are attracted to the phosphorus glow in the algae on the water's surface, and the fish caught at night are fresher for sale in the morning, because you could pull them off, you go in the morning, you sell them to the markets, right? In the original text, there's kind of an extra emphasis upon the phrase, that night. That night, they caught nothing. Almost as if that's unusual, and you would hope it would be unusual. These are commercial fishermen. If you go out and you catch nothing all night, you're not very good at what you do. Okay, or you just had a bad night, or all the fish left, or something happened, okay? <clears throat> the fact that they caught nothing, I think we, because we Yeshua was trying to show them something. Here's what we have to understand about this text. It's not just about fish, because the Lord taught them earlier, in a similar illustration, I'm going to make you fishers of men, Okay? And so they're out there and they didn't catch anything. And I think the Lord wants to remind them what He taught them in the upper room about fruit bearing in the kingdom. He said to them, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Alright, he's the vine, we have to be attached to the vine. Fellowship, communion. Now listen, (laughs) I'm not saying that apart from fellowship with Christ, you can't catch fish. I know plenty of heathens that catch fish that don't know God, don't care about God, okay? So that's not what I'm saying here. All right? There's plenty of unbelievers that are good at fishing. But Luke, in this context of fishing, is telling us that Yeshua says, don't be afraid, he said earlier, he says, from now on you'll be catching men. And so there's a connection there. And he said, listen, what I want you guys to do, you have to stay plugged into me. Although our relationship is different, I'm not going to be there with you. You're not going to see me. You still have to be plugged into me. You still have to commune with me. You need to abide with me. That's the only way you're going to be successful is if you're abiding in me, walking in fellowship with me. Now, just as day was breaking, Yeshua stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know it was Yeshua. Oh, my word, how many times are we going to see this, okay? Dawn's breaking just as they're returning from their fishing trip, their unsuccessful night of fishing. Just as in the two previous appearances of the Lord, it's just all of a sudden, boom, there He is. Shows up on the shore. The disciples saw Yeshua standing on the beach. They heard His voice. They had no clue who it was. And that fits every post-resurrection initial appearance of Yeshua. They didn't know it was Yeshua. Because, as I said, during this 40-day transition, He had to reveal Himself to be known. They could stand right next to him and talk to him. He had to reveal himself. Now listen, when you've been with someone day and night for over three years, 
It seems to me you'd recognize their form on the beach, their outline. You'd recognize their voice. Hey, I know that voice. Yet the disciples didn't know it was the Lord on the beach until He manifests Himself to them. Again, we said the same was true of Mary in the garden. The same was true of the disciples on the Emmaus Road. During these 40 days, from resurrection to ascension, they couldn't recognize Him unless He revealed Himself. Now, why is this the case? Well, my guess would be He's trying to teach them there's a transition happening here. I'm leaving. I'm not going to be around. And the only way anybody is going to ever know Me is if I reveal Myself to them. They don't have eyes to see unless I reveal myself. That's the only way anyone's going to know me from now on. So he's, it's in the transition. Things are changing here. So Yeshua said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they said, nope, no fish. Now, the word children here is paideia. And I guess a literal translation could be boys or guys. Hey, guys. It's kind of a friendly, casual greeting. Now, the form of Yeshua's question here in the Greek text assumed a negative answer. You don't have any fish, do you? That's more of the idea here. But what's interesting, the word for fish here, prosphagion, it denotes food of any kind that's eaten with bread. So it's not really a word for fish, but in this context, fish is demanded, because that's what they're trying to do is catch some fish, all right? So it's demanded. So Yeshua yells to them from the shore, you don't have anything to eat, do you? To which they say, no, you know, like, why do you ask? You know, that's kind of irritating. Who's this guy on the beach yelling at us, you know? So he said to them, cast the net on the other side of the boat, and you'll find some. Does anything about that bother you? Hmm? It did have another, but they still don't know who he is. Now listen. These guys, several of them, we know three of them, are commercial fishermen, okay? They're out in the boat. They've been all night, so they're aggravated. We didn't catch anything. They get to shore. Hey, try the other side. Who in the heck is this guy on the beach telling us how to fish? Oh, the other side. We never thought the fish would all be over there. You know, I mean, it's like, come on. This would, (laughs) when you know, when you're experienced at doing something and you got somebody who hasn't a clue telling you what to do, you're like, wait a second. You know? That's laughable. Try the other side of the boat. Here's what I found interesting here. The right side of the ship, the starboard side, for you landlubbers, okay, was regarded in ancient times as the fortunate side. Okay? William Manson, who was a New Testament scholar of about a generation ago, he was professor of New Testament at the University of Edinburgh. He wrote a book called The Incarnate Glory. And in the book, he likens the ship to the church. All right? And he likens the fishing to apostolic mission of fishing for men. I think that's obvious, okay? I think that's what this text is about. And he said that the right side of the ship represented a change of direction for them. And this was John's way and our Lord's way of reminding them that the nation had rejected the message and God was turning to the Gentiles. And I thought, ah, that's possible. Remember what Yeshua said back in 10, 16? He says, I have other sheep that are not others fold. So Professor Manson may be right. That may indicate there's a shift here going on, guys. Go to the starboard side. We're changing direction. Israel's rejected him. We're going to the Gentiles. 
I think the ideal of the, the idea of the Gentile mission is hinted at later in this text. We'll see that in a minute. So they cast it, and they find they were unable to haul it because of the quantity of fish. The most amazing thing to me is not this huge catch of fish here. It's they listen to this voice from the shore. I mean, these are guys, all right? They're arrogant. They're proud. They're fishermen. They're aggravated because they've been all night fishing. They don't have a thing. And some guy on the beach says, why don't you try the other side? Shut up, buddy. You know, no, we're not trying the other side. Their fish can swim right under the boat. They can go from side to side. We don't need to try the other side. But the miracle is they did it. Okay? That's what shocks me about this text. All right? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, maybe they did it to just say, yeah, watch this. There's no fish on that side of the boat either. Okay? All right, people, listen. This is a miracle. Okay? Yeshua is controlling the fish. All right? They catch nothing all night. Why? Because Yeshua kept all the fish out of their net. I mean, he just kept them all away. And now, they're all running into the net. Okay? William Barclay, any of you know who William Barclay is? He cannot be accused of orthodoxy. Okay? He's a great historian, but he is very unorthodox. He has a less miraculous explanation here. If you want to read about the miracles, you know, read what Barclay has to say, because he always tries to, you know, when Yeshua walked on water, he says there was exceptionally dense lily pads in that area. So I can just picture the Lord, he's jumping from, and I never knew a lily pad be that stern that can hold, you know, a 150 pound man, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. (laughs) He says here, he says, he believed that Yeshua saw a shoal of fish from his position on the shore. The disciples couldn't see from their position in the boat. Hey, that's a a whole ton of fish on the other side of the boat. (laughs) It's sad, you know, but people just can't believe in the miraculous, okay? He's neo-Orthodox. He doesn't believe in the miraculous. All right. Well, let me ask you, does this fish story remind you of a similar fish story that these men would have had several years ago? The very beginning of their ministry. All right, let's go back to Luke 5 as their ministry starts and read through this text and, and just, you know, think about the similarities here and the differences. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake Gennesaret. Now we know he's in Galilee, right? See a Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, there's Simon Peter, his, his own boat, He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So he said, get this boat out a little bit, and he sat there off the shore so the crowd couldn't, you know, mob him, and he's teaching them. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. In other words, okay, done teaching, let's go fishing, Peter. All right. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. That sound familiar? Here's this guy, same thing. They've been out all night. They didn't catch a thing. But at your word, (laughs) I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. Well, that sounds like the same story. Okay, we fished all night. We got nothing. You say do this. We do it. Now we got all kinds of fish. All right? And their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat, James and John, hey, guys, uh, we need some help over here. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. All right, you got two fishing, commercial fishing boats sinking because you have way too many fish. 
But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Yeshua's knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. This is the reaction of people when you're in the presence of God and you realize it, okay? And he realizes, I'm in the presence of God, and he just falls down and says, depart from me, Lord. And he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Yeshua said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you're going to be catching men. There you go. He's taking this fishing thing. He's turning it into, I'm teaching you about catching men. And when they had brought the nets or boats to the land, they left everything and they followed him. Now, the most obvious and probably the most important difference in these stories between Luke 5 and the one here is, is what? what do you, any differences stand out at you? Okay, we, that's, that's one of the differences. Remember, this is a transition time, so... Okay, right. First story, he's in the boat. Okay, second story, he's not in the boat. Why? Because this is a transition, he's leaving them, I want you to get used to doing things without me. He's not in the boat anymore, big difference. This symbolizes, I think, the separation that the disciples are going to be, that they're going through now and permanently going to be through as he leaves. And what he's teaching them, listen, I'm able to be with you. I'm able to take care of you just as well when you don't see me as I have the three and a half years I've been with you. He's trying to teach them this. Okay, guys, I was in the boat. You caught the fish. I'm not in the boat. I'm still directing you. I'm still in control. You can still trust me. And I think that's what's going on here. In Luke 5.10, Yeshua says, don't be afraid. You're going to be catching men. And that's what this story is about. Both stories are about, you know, they're using the the fish illustration about catching men. So this post-resurrection repetition of the miracle in 21 would have just refreshed their memories of that first catch of fish, reminded them, you know, this is the time when we realized who he was and we left everything and we followed it. And that's just kind of a, he's reiterating again, this is how your ministry started. Okay, now I'm gone. I'm leaving. But your ministry is going to go on. You're still going to be catching fish. Now the disciple whom Yeshua loved, therefore, said to him, It's the Lord! Here we see that the disciple whom Yeshua loved was one of the seven listed in verse 2. Right? Okay? In verse 2, the sons of Zebedee, and then you have two others. Now, in this list, we have the sons of Zebedee. They're not named, but who are they? James and John. John, who people say was the author of this book, the Apostle. Well, we know that the unnamed disciple is the disciple whom Yeshua loved because he tells us here. So we have John and we have the disciple whom Yeshua loved. And most people say John is the disciple whom Yeshua loved. Well, they're both there. And he can't be two people because that makes up seven. One of them's John, one's the disciple. So he's not, so he didn't write this book. I think this is strong evidence of the fact that it was Lazarus, the disciple whom Yeshua loved, not John the Apostle who wrote it. All right? We see this all through there, but anyway, you got that, right? How did Lazarus know it was the Lord? He recognized his voice? I don't think so. I think it's the miracle. He saw the miracle and he goes, It's the Lord. Who else does that stuff? I mean, really, guys. Remember, we've seen all these things. He says, it's the Lord. 
That stranger on the beach is Yeshua. He calls him Lord. Now in some texts, it's simply a polite address. Curios. But in others, it's a theological affirmation of Yeshua's deity. That's what's happening here. It's, It's Yahweh. On the beach. He recognizes. This is the sovereign Lord on the beach. Nobody else tells fish what to do. Okay? It says, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. It was the custom to remove one's outer long garment and to wear only like a breech cloth when you were fishing. Gentiles usually fish naked. Okay, and the word here is gumnas, which means to kind of work naked, but it doesn't mean they were totally naked because the Jews were kind of sensitive about nakedness and they didn't, you know, it wasn't likely that they would have been fishing naked. Gentiles, yeah, stay away from the Gentile boats, okay? They don't dress when they're fishing, all right? Now, that Peter dressed before jumping in the water doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, when you go swimming, you usually take clothes off, not put clothes on, right? Okay. Peter's like, hey, it's the Lord. Let me put my outer comb on. Let me put this big, heavy robe on and jump in the water and swim. The Greek word here for put on is diadzonemi. And this verb has the idea of tying clothes around yourself. So this same verb is used in chapter 13, 4 or 5 of Yeshua, tying the towel around himself. So I think what's going on here is Peter grabbed his outer garment because when he gets up on the shore, he doesn't want to be half naked in front of the Lord. So he grabbed his garment and just tied it around him and he jumps in. He's not literally putting it on so he can jump in and swim with it on. He's tying it so he'll have it with him. All right. And I think that the eagerness shown here by Peter tells me that you know, a lot of people say, well, at this point, you know, the Lord really hadn't forgiven Peter. They hadn't had that reconciliation. I don't see that here at all. You know, think about what Peter went through. All right, the Lord said, you're going to deny me three. I will never deny you. I don't care what anybody else. I'm Lord, you can count on me. Some little slave girl goes, don't I know you? Hell no, I'm not part of this group. I don't know the Lord. I don't know anything about that. You know, he's just bent out of shape over it, you know, because a little slave girl asked him. And remember what happened when he denied him the third time? The Lord looked at him, and the rooster crowed. Okay, so you can imagine, after that, when the Lord's risen, Peter really anxious to get in his presence. He's got to be ashamed, he's got to be embarrassed, he's got to feel bad. So I think the reconciliation's already happened, okay? And that's why now, they've already been reconciled. So it's the Lord, he bet he jumps in, he's getting to, I want to get there and be in his presence. It doesn't give me any indication of someone who's like, the relationship is strained, you know. I'm not going to jump off the boat and swim, you know. We're not quite fixed yet, no. But that just gives me the idea that everything is fine here. They're doing okay. The other disciple came in the boat, dragging <clears throat> the net full of fish, and not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. So Peter leaves the other disciples in the boat. He just, you know, this is Peter. He grabs this thing and jumps in you know, swims or walks, however close they were. And when they, got out of the, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Okay, so they get there and the Lord's got a breakfast ready for them. This is really cool. Uh, now, Lazarus tells us here there was a charcoal fire that Yeshua had going. The word for charcoal fire is anthrakia. It's only used one other time in Scripture. You know where that other charcoal fire is? 
It's when Peter denied the Lord, he was standing at a charcoal fire. Only other time it's used. So he's at a charcoal fire, he denies him, and now he's at a charcoal fire having dinner, having breakfast with him. Breakfast is a picture of fellowship. When they eat together, they're fellowshipping. He denied him, now they're fellowshipping. I just, it's a beautiful picture of forgiveness, you know. Same word. Now before his crucifixion, Yeshua had served the disciples in the upper room by washing their feet. Now he continued to serve them as their risen Lord by providing them a, a nice warm fire and breakfast. Now they get back from a fishing trip where they didn't catch anything and now they just get this haul and now they're going to have breakfast with the Lord. Yeshua said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now, <clears throat> the word here for hauled is the Greek word helkuo. You know what that, that ring a bell? Huh? Halkuo is best translated drag. You get that in this text, right? That's how he got the net there. Okay, he didn't stand on the boat and say, Net, would you please come to me? Net, I'm begging you. Please, come into the boat. All you fish, come on. No, I mean, that's what people do with Halkuo, okay? But Halkuo, as we have said, means to draw by irresistible superiority. Peter's pulling that net. It's interesting he's doing it himself. It's, that's what it sounds like. I'll get it, guys. You go. I mean, that's Peter's pretty good, strong man here if he's pulling this whole thing in. All right? This word, Helkuo, is used eight times in the New Testament. If you look up all eight uses, you'll find the idea of dragging. But two times in John, people don't like to translate it dragging. They want to give it a whole new meaning because it doesn't fit their theology. One of those is John 6, 44, where Yeshua says, no one can come to me. Okay, and by no one, he means not anyone. Okay? <laughs> You can't come to me unless, what's the exception? The Father who sent me drags you. Now that sounds rough, doesn't it? Drags? But that's what, that's what the word means. Okay, Draws by irresistible superiority. And I will raise them up, but the ones the Father draws, I'm going to raise up. This is what Calvinists call irresistible grace. You know why they call it irresistible? Because you can't resist it. Uh, that's deep, okay? That's heavy. But that's why it's called Jerusalem. Now, it doesn't mean that you're fighting and screaming, I don't want to be saved, and God's just dragging you along. God changes your heart. He gives you a new heart. That's why this grace is irresistible. He draws you by giving you new life in Christ, and then you're coming along. You're not fighting and kicking, but it's, it's irresistible. You can't resist the grace of God. All right, back to our text. How many fish did they catch? <clears throat> 153. Big fish. All right. <laughs> what a fish story, huh? <laughs> now, let me ask you this. Let me tell you this. It is no exaggeration when I tell you that biblical scholars have spilt a ton of ink trying to explain 153. I mean, it is... It is Laughable. I'm going to share with you some of them. Just put a smile on your face, okay? So you can, can you smile this morning. Scholars, ancient and modern, have tried to find some connection to the gematria here of this number, 153. Now, gematria is the symbolic relationship between letters and numbers. In Greek and Hebrew, a letter also represented a number, 
Okay, so they would take the words and they'd take each letter and add the numbers up and try to come up with some kind of, you know, sense out of that. One suggestion using gematria is that the phrase sons of God in Greek is 3212, which is 3 times 7 times 153. Isn't that amazing? And I'm like, so? <laughs> okay. Um, and I just, I'm scratching my head and say, okay. So a large fish represent what? Sons of God. I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of confusing. And there's, they just, they're reaching for the stars in some of these things, all right? Other scholars have determined that the number of the church equals 12 squared, added to the number of Trinity, 3 squared, equals 153. Augustine, in his commentary on John's Gospel, tried a mathematical approach and suggested that there might be a connection to the sum of all the numbers from 1 to 17. See, he suggested that 17 is symbolic. It's a symbolic combination of the number 10, which signifies the Old Covenant, and 7, which signifies spiritual perfection of the New Covenant. And he talks about the Holy Spirit, the seven gifts of the Spirit, Augustine determined that all of the numbers from 1 to 17 added together yields 153. So he would do this, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 plus 6 plus 7 blah, 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 up to 17. And then guess what you got? 153. Isn't that amazing? Other scholars using a mathematical approach noted that 100, hang with me here, okay? 153 dots can be arranged into an equilateral triangle with 17 dots on each side to yield a numerical symbol of perfection using the number 17. <laughs> I'm like, uh, okay, he lost me there. Now, some say that the reference is to an important date in church history, 153 A.D. Well, I don't know what happened in 153 A.D., and I don't really care, because I don't think that's right, all right? Cyril stated that 100 stood for Gentiles, 50 stood for Jews, and 3 was the Trinity. Did they just, what, 153 means something, so let's make up some ideas. All right, the ideas go on ad infinitum, ad nauseum. I mean, they, Augustine finally came up and declared this number a great mystery. <laughs> he should have started there, okay? Now, one of the ideas that to me had some validity to it is from Jerome. He notes that the Greek zoologist Apiinus Silix who lived during the time of Marcus Aurelius, estimated that the total number of species of fish in the Sea of Galilee was 153. Okay, now listen. Okay, that now, whether that's true or not, but this is a zoologist said, we've got 153 species here. Okay? So, <clears throat> Jerome said, now, that, he felt it was symbolic of all the different tribes of the earth being brought back into God's covenant family. Okay, if that number was a familiar number, in other words, if people during that day knew, hey, Galilee's got 153 varieties of different fish in it, if they understood that, then maybe they saw this as every tribe, tongue, and nation, you know, being brought to faith through the mission of Christ. That's possible. Okay, and you know, a parallel to that would be in Matthew 13, where he says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and it gathered fish of every kind. So here Yeshua compares the kingdom of heaven to a dragnet, you know, and bringing these fish of every kind, the universality of the Christian mission. Maybe, at least in all these different things, to me, that made the most sense. 
Well, let me give you one last theory. This is the best theory of all, okay? Maybe Lazarus simply recorded the number as a detail to lend authenticity to his testimony. He was there. Hey, they counted the fish, 153. At a purely historical level, it's unsurprising that somebody counted them. You ever been fishing? And someone said, how many fish you catch? I don't know. No, they know. And if they don't know, guess what they do? Exaggerate it. They were this big. You know, that's just the fisherman is known for telling stories, okay? And so these guys are, hey, that's a bunch of fish. Yeah, well, we got to divide it up because we got to know who, who gets what. So let's count them. Or maybe somebody says, man, that's a lot of fish. I wonder how many there are. And someone said, well, let's count them. You know, can you believe it? Can you believe we caught that many? So maybe the 153 simply means that there were 153 fish in the net. That's the wildest of all conclusions, right? But maybe that's what it was. Okay? Hey, it's just a historical detail. I was there. They counted them. There was 153. I don't know. Anything else I think is really speculation. Like I said, I like the Gentile theory. I think, you know, that kind of fits with the right side of the boat we talked about earlier. But, you know, either way, we know that's true, whether this is trying to portray it or not, or just somebody counted the fish. But see, you got to be careful because people do this with Scripture. Well, this number represents that, and that number represents this, and you got all kinds of, you know. It's funny, I got a, I got a letter this week from somebody, you know, trying to prove something from Scripture from the number, the whole idea, Gematria, you know. Well, this number over here, and that number here, and that, you know, and I'm like, just, the Bible's hard enough to understand without trying to make a code out of everything in there. You know, and if you make a code, I guarantee you, you can make it say anything you want it to say. You know, you just work long enough and large enough at the numbers. They would, this guy in the letter was saying, well, every 20th letter, and then every 120th letter, and then every, and I'm like, you're going to pick up, make up whatever, you, if you do that long enough, you're going to come up with whatever you want to come up with, okay? So let's, let's just study to understand the Bible in its context without trying to dig up every, you know, thing we can. And they said the net wasn't torn. Like Sharon said, this is a difference, right? When they check the nets, they're like, wow, that's a lot of fish. We didn't even break the nets. And I think the message is clear. Yeshua is telling him, I can take care of you. I can provide every need you have. Even though I'm no longer going to be physically with you, you're not going to see me anymore, I'm going to look after you. I'm going to abundantly supply for your needs if you just abide in me. All right, you're called to be fishers of men. This is what's going to happen as you fish for men. Independence upon me. When you fish for men... And not dependence upon me, it's going to be like when you got back all night with nothing, okay? Because that's what he said, without me, you can do nothing. So Yeshua said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Well, why would they need to ask him if they knew who it was, you know? Come have breakfast. This is a call for fellowship, okay? In the Bible, dining together, having a meal together is a picture of fellowship. Thomas Constable writes this, In the ancient Near East, a host who entertained hospitality to others and provided food for them was implying that he would defend them from then on. Now, you can see that in the Bible, right? See that often? Sodom and Gomorrah. Hey, take my daughters. What? Are you on drugs? Take your daughters? Hospitality was so important that they were just trying to protect those people. All right? Consequently, Jesus' invitation may have been a promise of commitment to them like the kind offered at the Oriental Covenant meal. 
saying, you know, guys, sit down and have breakfast. I'm going to take care of you. It fits with the story anyway. All right? And they knew it was the Lord. Now, again, it's, it sounds kind of weird. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Well, the disciple who you love said, it's the Lord. And we saw the miracle. We know it's obviously the Lord. But this doesn't look like some not familiar. But they know it's Yahweh. And kurios is used in the Septuagint to translate yod heh vav And so thus, I think Yeshua's prophecy in 828 is being fulfilled. He said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. I'm Yahweh. All right, lifting up here, he means crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension. Now they're realizing you're Yahweh. Okay, they get it. They're catching on. So even though he didn't seem... Like the person they knew, they realized it's the Lord. Yeshua came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. So they sit down around this little charcoal fire, and the Lord feeds them. I think Yeshua is telling His disciples that even though He's not going to be around, they can count on His supernatural provision. You guys, you can count on me. Supernaturally, I will take care of you. And listen, people, the Christian life is supernatural, okay? It's to be lived supernaturally. In other words, the new birth is not something natural. It's not something we can figure out. It's supernatural. And the life is to be supernatural in our dependence upon Him. And, and, but the problem is we're so connected to the earth, we're so fleshly minded that we just don't seem to get it most times. I'm sure most of you are familiar with George Mueller, right? He was a man who knew the Lord's supernatural provision. He was a man who knew how to trust the Lord. He fed thousands of orphans in the orphanage in Bristol by simply going to God. Okay, listen to this. He never sent out a prayer letter. Okay, I'd like you to pray for me. And boy, we're in great financial need. If you could help out financially, that'd be wonderful, you know. Begging people, okay. He made no appeals for funds. He didn't ask people. No public contributions. He didn't do that. In fact, he didn't make the situation even known to people in the disguise of a prayer request, okay? He kept that to himself and to his closest workers. There was no pledge system. And I read stories of Mueller. He got all these orphans together and they sat down. He had not a thing to feed them. Sit down, let's pray for our meal. You know, not knowing there's no food. And while they're praying, there's a knock on the door and he goes and some baker had just, you know, I got way too much food here and can you use it? Story after story we got from Mueller like that. He just trusted God, and God provided for him. Now, I think we have kind of a modern-day version of that in Gennady. You know, we've heard from him. And I'll tell you, one of the things that he said that stuck with me so clearly, he said, in my area, prayer works. And it's just like a knife, you know, it's like, yeah, because I guess you're trusting God. Gennady, uh, okay, thank you. Gennady is a Russian pastor. He lives in the Ukraine. I guess I shouldn't call him Russian. Sorry, Gennady. He's, he lives in the Ukraine. The Ukraine is at war with Russia right now. And Gennady goes to the front line. And he takes provisions to the people there that are starving to death. He takes them bread. He takes them bags of food. He takes them Bibles. You know, and he, he constantly takes his van, fills it with stuff, and drives to the front line. And he told me the same situation. He goes, we're making plans for the trip to go to the front line. We don't have any food. But we're just planning like, well, God knows. He's gonna, and he goes, last minute, people show up with food. And here, take. 
you know, and he goes there. And I was joking him because he had, they have loaves of bread, not wrapped up or anything, just stacked in the van. And I'm like, you'd get arrested here for that, you know. I mean, that's like, you can't do that. He goes, people are starving to death. They don't care about that, you know. And so he's just, they're just thrilled, you know. They got a loaf of bread and they got a Bible that he's taking him. You know, but he's, and he told me, he said, when I came back from the war, I came back different. Because I learned there that, you know, there's something much more about this Christianity that we don't get when you really get in a position where you have to trust God. And these people look forward to him showing up and feeding them and taking care, and taking care of them. So it's kind of a modern day George Mueller. It says, this was now the third time that Yeshua was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So Lazarus concludes the narrative of this incident by identifying the third instance of Yeshua's manifestation to the disciples after his resurrection. Now, this forms an inclusio with verse 1. He revealed himself. Verse 14, he reveals himself. Brackets the whole section. Okay. Now, we should probably understand this as a reference to appearances of the group of disciples because we know he appeared to Mary. That would have made four, but you know he's talking about the disciples here. That's, I think, the emphasis on here. All right. So you and I... We can't go fishing with Yeshua, okay, as these disciples did. But I think the lesson here is that even though Yeshua is no longer on earth in the flesh, He's still meeting the needs of His children, okay? Just like those first disciples are called to abide in Him, we're called to abide in Him. To abide is to walk in communion with Him. It's to be plugged in, to be dependent upon Him. It's, it's the... Be in a situation where when you need something, your first inclination is to turn to the Lord, not your last, okay? You're just walking with Him. You're in that communion. You're abiding. And through dwelling with Him, He says, that's how fruit is produced. So if there's no fruit coming out of our life, it's not that well, something's wrong here. Something's wrong is that you're not abiding with Christ. Because when you're plugged into the vine, the fruit comes. But again, in our situation, it's just so rote that I think sometimes we're just not trusting Christ. And do we need to trust Him in our day? Well, not for our food. Refrigerator's full. we got MasterCard, Visa. But listen, you need to trust Him day in and day out just for your breath. Okay? And communion with Him is, is to be a thing that when people notice your life, they see there's something different about that. Because they're plugged in. Plugged in so you just demonstrate the life of Christ Whatever you do, whatever you say. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for this text. I know there's a lot more here, Lord, that we haven't dug out, but I thank You for what is there. I thank You, Lord, that we see Your supernatural provision. If we would just learn to trust You, to walk with You, to depend upon You, not to try to find things our own way, seek our own way, work it out on ourselves. Lord, we don't see You in a physical sense, that we can touch You and come to You and ask You questions. But Lord, You've given us the Holy Spirit. You are alive and You're ruling and reigning. Help us to learn to trust You, to walk with You, to work, just live in an intimate relationship with You, Lord, that everything in life is about You. Lord, thank You for Your patience with us. Amen.